0: There's a fascinating sequence of commands in the Great Holiness Code with which our parsha begins that sheds light on the nature not just of leadership in Judaism, but also followership. Here is the command in its context. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Reprove or reason with your neighbor frankly so that you will not bear sin because of him. Don't seek revenge or bear a a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There are two completely different ways of understanding the italicized words. Maimonides brings them both as legally binding. Nachmanides also includes them both in his commentary to the Torah. Here is the first interpretation. Reading the command in terms of interpersonal relations. Someone you believe has done you harm. In such a case, says the terror, don't remain in a state of silent resentment, don't give way to hate, don't bear a grudge, don't take revenge. Instead, reprove him, reason with him, tell him what you believe he's done and how you feel it's harmed you. He may apologize and seek to make amends. Even if he doesn't, at least you will have made your feelings known to him. That in itself is cathartic. It will help you avoid nursing a grievance. But the second interpretation sees the command in impersonal terms. It's got nothing to do with you being harmed. It refers to someone you see acting wrongly, committing a sin or a crime. You may not be the victim. and You may just be an observer. The command tells us not to be content with passing a negative judgment on his behavior, i.e. hating him in your heart. You have to get involved. You should remonstrate with him, pointing out in as gentle and constructive a way as you can that what he's doing is against the law, civil or moral. If you stay silent and do nothing, you will become complicit in his guilt. That is, you will bear sin because of him. Because you saw him do wrong and you did nothing to protest. Now, this second interpretation is possible only if, because of Judaism's fundamental principle, that Kol Yisrael Arabian all Jews, are responsible for one another. However, the Talmud says something fascinating about the scope of this command. One of the rabbis said to Rava, says the Gemara, meaning you shall reprove your neighbor repeatedly. Might this mean hocheach, reprove him once, and tochiach a second time? No, said Rava. The word means even a hundred times. Why then does it add the word Had there only been a single verb, I would have known that the law applies to a master reproving his disciple. How do we know that it applies even to a disciple reproving his master? From the phrase, implying under all circumstances. Now this is significant because it establishes a principle of critical followership. So far in these essays, we've been looking at the role of the leader in Judaism but what about the follower? On the face of it, the duty of the follower is to follow. The duty of a disciple is to learn. After all, Judaism commands almost unlimited respect for teachers. Let your reverence for your teacher be as great as your reverence for heaven, said the sages. Despite this, The Gemara understands the Torah to be commanding us to remonstrate, even with our teacher or our leader, should we see him or her doing something wrong. Supposing a leader commands you to do something you know to be forbidden in Jewish law, should you obey? The answer is a categorical no. The Talmud puts this in the form of a rhetorical question, faced with the choice between obeying the master, i.e. God, or a disciple, i.e. a human leader, whom should you obey? The answer is obvious, obey God. So here in Jewish law is the logic of civil disobedience, the idea that we have a duty to disobey an immoral order. Then there is the great Jewish idea of active questioning and machloket l'shem shemayim, argument for the sake of heaven. Parents are obliged and teachers encouraged to train students to ask questions. Traditional Jewish learning is designed to make teacher and disciple alike aware of the fact that more than one view is possible on any question of Jewish law, and multiple interpretations, shivim panim la Torah, exist of any biblical verse. Judaism is unique in that virtually all of its canonical texts, Midrash, Mishnah, and Gemara, are anthologies of arguments. Rabbi X said this, Rabbi Y said that, or they're surrounded by multiple commentaries, each with its own perspective. The very act of learning in rabbinic Judaism is conceived of as active debate, the kind of gladiatorial contest of the mind. Says the Gemara, even a teacher and disciple, even a father and son, when they sit to study Torah together, become enemies to one another, but they do not move from there until they have become beloved to one another. Hence the Talmudic saying, much wisdom have I learned from my teacher, more from my colleagues, but most from my students. Therefore, despite the reverence we owe our teachers, we owe them also our best efforts at questioning and challenging their ideas. This is essential to the rabbinical idea of learning as the collaborative pursuit of truth. The idea of critical followership gave rise in Judaism to the world's first social critics, the prophets, mandated by God to speak truth to power and to summon even kings to the bar of justice and right conduct. That's what Samuel did to Saul, Elijah to Ahab, Isaac to Hezekiah, Isaiah to Hezekiah. None did so more effectively than the prophet Nathan when with immense skill he got King David to appreciate the enormity of his sin. In sleeping with another man's wife, David immediately recognized his wrong and said, Chatati, I have sinned. Exceptional though the prophets of Israel were, even their achievement takes second place to one of the most remarkable phenomena in the history of religion, namely that God himself chooses as his most beloved disciples, the very people who are willing to challenge heaven itself. Abraham said, Shall the judge of all the, the earth not do justice? Moses said, Why have you done evil to this people? Jeremiah and Habakkuk challenged God on the apparent injustices of history. Job, who argued with God, is eventually vindicated by God, while his comforters, who defended God, are deemed by God to have been in the wrong. In short, God himself chooses active, critical followers rather than those who silently obey. Hence the unusual conclusion that in Judaism followership is as active and demanding as leadership. We can put this more strongly. Leaders and followers don't sit on opposite sides of the table. They are on the same side, the side of justice and compassion and the common good. No one is above criticism and no one is too junior to administer it if done with due grace and humility. A disciple may criticize a teacher, a child may challenge a parent, a prophet may challenge a king, and all of us, simply by bearing the name Israel, are summoned to wrestle with God and with our fellow humans in the name of the right and the good. Uncritical followership and habits of silent obedience give rise to the corruptions of power or simply to avoidable catastrophes. For example, a series of fatal accidents occurred between 1970 and 1999 to planes belonging to Korean Air. One in particular, Korean Air Flight 8509, in December 1999, led to a review that suggested that Korean culture, with its tendency toward autocratic leadership and deferential followership, may have been responsible for the first officer not warning the pilot that he was off course. John F. Kennedy assembled one of the most talented group of advisers ever to serve an American president, yet in the Bay of Pigs' invasion of Cuba in 1961, committed one of the most foolish mistakes. Subsequently, one of the members of the group, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., attributed the error to the fact that the atmosphere within the group was so convivial that no one wanted to disturb it by pointing out the folly of the proposal. Groupthink and conformism are perennial dangers within any closely knit group, as a series of famous experiments in social science have shown, which is why in Cass Sunstein's phrase, societies need dissent. My favorite example is one given by James Sirwecky in The Wisdom of Crowds. He tells the story of how an American naturalist, William Beebe, came across a strange sight in the Guyana jungle, a group of army ants was moving in a huge circle. The ants went round and round in the same circle for two days until most of them dropped dead. The reason is that when a group of army ants is separated from their colony, they obey a simple rule. Follow the ant in front of you. The trouble is that if the ant in front of you is lost, so will you be. Suweki's argument is that we need dissenting voices. People who challenge the conventional wisdom, resist the fashionable consensus, and disturb the intellectual peace. Follow the person in front of you is as dangerous to humans as it is to army ants. To stand apart and be willing to question where the leader is going is the task of the critical follower. Great leadership happens when there is strong and independently-minded followership. Hence, when it comes to constructive criticism, A disciple may challenge a teacher, and a prophet reprimand a king.